Welcome to In Discussion and my guest today, Brenda Dada Robichaud and Patrick O'Brien. Brenda Robichaud was born October the 15th, 1958, in the Bayou community of Golden Meadow, Louisiana. Her mother and father are humour, who were not allowed to attend public schools and were limited to a seventh grade education by the policies of segregation present at that time. She was the first child in her family to be allowed to attend public school and was her family's first high school graduate. She is the granddaughter of Ernest Dada, a well-respected tribal leader and spiritual healer. Shortly after graduation in 1976, she began working for the title of the 7th Indian Education of La Fauche Parish School Board, where she served as Director and Cultural Resource Specialist. She began serving on the Tribal Council of the United Human Nation in 1992, and later in 1997 she was elected Chairwoman of the 16,000-member nation, and in 2002 attained the position of Principal Chief of the Human Nation. Under her leadership in both Indian education and tribal government, the United Human Nation enjoyed unparalleled growth, a cultural resurgence, and international recognition. Under new tribal initiatives, she helped to implement cultural preservation programs, tribal elder and youth development, economic development, annual elders festival and banquet, healthcare services and New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival participation. She and the Human Nation have hosted members of the French Senate, French aristocracy and French naval attachments, as well as tribal leaders of many nations. She was presented, during her time in this role, a medal by the French government, making her the first humor medical chief of the nation in over 200 years. Her willingness to confront the injustices against Indian people from the classroom to the state capital is well established, and she has gained a reputation as being an outspoken and dauntless advocate for minority issues. This devotion to her people was what inspired her to start the United Humor Nation Relief Fund in the wake of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, which is still helping thousands of tribal members return home and rebuild. My guests join me today to discuss the challenges facing the Humor community and many communities in the Gulf region in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Brenda Robishaw also talks to the effects to their own community by the long-time dumping of toxic chemicals located within walking distance of their residents. It is hoped that these compounding issues may reinforce the need for all companies involved in bringing solid solutions to these and the many people of the Gulf region suffering from the after-effects of an industry inflicting so much pain to those people in the region. Brenda Robishaw joins investigative journalist Patrick O'Brien on In Discussion. Welcome today to In Discussion and our guests, Brenda Robishaw and Pat O'Brien, investigative journalists. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be with you, David. Brenda, we enjoyed a program with your husband. Today we'd like to talk about the history of the United Human Nation before we talk about the aftermath and the effects of the Deepwater Horizon disaster and also in your community the problems with toxic materials that are being dumped. Could we start off by receiving an overview of the nation? 
Sure. Our tribe is the United Homo Nation. We live along the bayous of southeast Louisiana. If you were to look at a map, we are from St. Mary Parish to Plaquemines Parish, Jefferson, and St. Bernard. So if you consider Louisiana as a boot, we're like the toes on the boot is the best way to uh, recognize our community. We have, like I said, 17,000 tribal citizens. We were once in the area of Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is actually our state capital, and it stands for Red Stick, which was a boundary marker between us and the neighboring tribe of the Bayou Goulas. We migrated south, and now we're along the coastline of southeast Louisiana. We have uh, applied for federal recognition and have been in that process for 30-plus years. Uh, it was described as being an 18-month process when we first began, but now we're in it for 30-plus years, still with no final determination. We are a state-recognized tribe. That means the state of Louisiana recognizes us as an Indian tribe, but we've yet to attain that federal acknowledgement. Our people have been fishermen, trappers, farmers, just living off the land for generation after generation. We did not have access to public schools until the civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, prior to that, Indian children attended their own schools, which was called Indian Settlement Schools, which offered a seventh grade education. So the generation of my father has but a seventh grade education, and that's because that was all that was offered to them at the time. And so therefore, they'd graduate, as my dad would say, from the seventh grade and immediately begin working on fishing boats or trapping or oystering. Uh, I started school in the mid-60s, so I was the first generation to actually have access to regular public school. We, in the last program, talked to Clarice and R.J. Molyneux, and it was a very emotive program. Is the situation rather alarming today? I know that you have been experiencing this toxic waste for some years, but what is the status today in the community? Right now, each community is facing its own unique challenges, unfortunately. The thriving communities that I grew up in and loving is no longer as it once was. The Godompa community, as I'm sure you discussed last week, has its unique challenges with the hazardous waste facility there, and they're still continuing to fight um, having toxic material dumped into their community. And so it's, it is quite concerning, to put it nicely. Uh, the conditions that the community is having to live in and suffer through. When you look at the communities along the coastline of southeast Louisiana, we have the effects of oil and gas again that built location canals. With these location canals, it allows for saltwater intrusion. And so now our land is eroding away before our very eyes. When our tribal citizens years ago could actually stand out and look out their back door and see acres and acres of land, now they see open water. And so we're having to make tough decisions on the future of our communities and what do we do to try to protect the fragile lands that we still have. And so each community is facing extreme conditions. Uh, and now we have an oil spill on top of that. Quite concerns about if a hurricane were coming to the area, what damage would be brought to our communities if oil would be um, thrown upon our lands. How far from the coast are you there? We are right along the coast. If you almost step out our back door, you're, um, you're right there. We have bayous that run through our communities, and we're right near the Gulf of Mexico. I actually live in a town called Raceland, which is an hour's drive, but my father lives in the Indian community below Golden Meadow, and that's maybe a, a half an hour's drive to the Gulf waters. Pat O'Brien, we have interviewed a couple of times, maybe several, Billy Nungesser, 
He's very close, is he not, in this region? Well, he's the, uh, if I'm, you've got to correct geographically, uh, he would be to the right in Plaquemines Parish, which borders, I believe, on the, the opposite side of the home. Is that correct, Brenda? Yes, he's at the, in Plaquemines Parish, correct. He's another coastal uh, community, a coastal parish. I remember that you had indicated that that particular parish had been impacted by huge amounts of oil. I remember it was a high percentage. Yeah, um, what is happening, the way I understand it, and Brenda, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Grand Isle, which is uh, the Plaquemines Parish, when the initial oil started coming up, it was originally coming up mostly on the Grand Isle side. And then it, uh, as time has gone on, I'm understanding that you're actually getting oil slips possibly from another what uh, Matt Simmons at the time told us was uh, perhaps another crack uh, just uh, about 50 miles away from the rig, that you're starting to get oil exposure back onto your side in Grand Bois. So let me just clarify a couple of points. Billy Nungesser is the parish president of Plaquemines Parish, and now Grand Isle is below Golden Meadow. It's at the southern end of Lafouche Parish, but it actually belongs to Jefferson Parish, just a little technicality. All along the coast was really ground zero. Plaquemines Parish really suffered a lot with the oil spill. It was really close, but it was also close to Grand Isle, which is Jefferson Parish, Lower Lafouche. And so there, there was a tremendous amount of oil that kept washing ashore on the beaches. And there is another slick that they're noticing now. They're not laying blame to BP for it. They're saying that it's something else that has caused this. It's a different oil or a different type and so they're not they're saying that it's not part of the bp oil slick but whatever it is it's still miles and thousands of gallons of oil that's coming ashore again what is posing the biggest threat to your community at the moment is it the oil dumped in the community or is it a combination of that and the oil that is coming from the Deepwater horizon disaster unfortunately it's just not one aspect of it it's everything that seems to be coming ahead at the same time. We're looking at the fishermen who have concerns about this upcoming uh, trawling season. The trawlers fish by season. There's a May season and an August season. And so they're getting ready for the May season. But noticing now this new slick that's coming ashore, they're recognizing out there, they have concerns if the season's going to be open and actually what kind of season are they going to have. And so our fishermen have a great concern. My father is a trawler, a fisherman, just like his dad and generations of that. And so it's more than just an occupation for them. It's something they've done generation after generation. It's in their blood. It's in their spirit. It's in their heart. My dad describes being out on the boat as his Christmas every day. He says that when you're out and you're, for Christmas morning, you have this beautiful package and you can't wait to untie the boat to see what your present is. That's the same feeling he has when he's out on his boat. He picks up his trawl net and he just can't wait to untie the bottom to see what blessings he's caught in his net. And so it gives him that same feeling. And so now this is a man who absolutely loves what he does and is passionate about it, but he has concerns about the shrimping season. He has concerns about what he's catching. Is it safe? And they would never want to put anything in the food chain that's not safe. And he has concerns about it. He's trawled his entire life, so he knows what's healthy and what's not. And he has concerns about that. And so, to be honest, we have not eaten any seafood. Before the oil spill happened, when it first began, they were able to trawl a little bit. And I told them, we all call him Paul. 
I told them, Paul, everything you catch I want to buy because I knew it would be quite some time before we'd have real good confidence in the safety of the seafood that they're catching. He also has oyster beds in which he harvests his oysters, known to have some of the best fat, saltiest oysters on the bayou, has not touched his oyster beds because there was oil around that as well and just concerns about the safety of it. And so that's one aspect of what we're facing now. Would it be accurate to suppose that the fishing industry is on hold at this stage? It is in a sense. We're just not sure what the season's going to be. You know, are they going to be able to open it? In what areas are you going to be able to go trawling? That's still all a relative unknown at this point. And so it, it's quite difficult because they're not able to earn a living like they used to, and they're stuck in a BP claims process that has, it, it's hard to even describe. No one is being compensated adequately, uh, and you're at their mercy. There's really no appeal system, and you're at that mercy. I've attended numerous meetings with Ken Feinberg uh, trying to explain, and it's just so frustrating because the things that he's saying is not the actuality of what's happening. I was becoming nauseated watching all the BP commercials everywhere I traveled, no matter where I was in the United States, all these BP commercials talking about all the wonderful things BP is doing, and that's not what was happening on the ground. And so it, it, it's really frustrating. Pat O'Brien, would it be sensible to say with your research that this is accentuated particularly in this area or do you think that these problems are widespread all along the coastline? Well we know uh, for a fact that it's widespread all along the coastline from Louisiana all the way down through the coast of Florida and back up the east coast of Florida that a number of people are getting ill and it is from Nelco's product, which is the Corexit, that was used as a dispersant. We keep hearing the word dispersant on the news. All that means is the Corexit product. And most people don't understand that Nelco and BP have a relationship that started at the Exxon Valdez spill years ago. And that product, Corexit, was used at that time in Alaska and that many of the cleanup workers, and we've interviewed a number of those people that were on that site when it happened, a number of those people became deathly, I mean, deathly ill. Many of them died. Many of them became very injured. And about that same time, Europe banned that product from use, and yet that product was on a list of approved products by the EPA. Matter of fact, it was the fourth most toxic product on the list that the EPA had approved for use in such a problem. However, what that product did, corrects it, is merely took, you have to understand that the government finds oil companies based on the slick that is on top of the water. That's how they come up with how they're going to find the company. What the product corrects it did is drove that product away from the top and into columns where you weren't able to see that from the air. That is what really has caused the issue that they used that product fully knowing that it was extremely toxic and even more toxic when mixed with the sweet crude oil. They knew this would happen, and yet they still went ahead and did it. What we have is columns of this poison going through, and we also knew of these other oil fractures that were on the, they, they saw the methane levels coming up. Uh, we've talked to Dr. Kessler, 
uh, who is studying those methane. We have divers that have been in those areas that saw that there was more oil coming up than from where they actually capped the deep water horizon. So we knew that the Coast Guard had been protecting that other oil slick by utilizing a no-fly zone. We've established that. We also know that up until last week, that Corexit product was still being used to diminish the amount of oil on top of the water. We have all of this in photos, in documentation, and yet the issue is now we're finding, after talking to many different doctors and many different scientists, uh, Wilma Subra, Mary Lee Orr with Lean, that's leanweb.org, the many people we are talking to are now telling us many people, thousands of people, are getting sick as a result of this toxic mixture of the Corexit and the sweet oil. Let me, if I may, return to Brenda Robishaw for a second. Is there an awareness in your community to these problems, or is the focus more simply on the toxicity of the oil? Uh, There is an awareness, and more and more people are coming forward with severe health problems. And thank you so much, because you shared it exactly correct of what's happening here. My husband is seeing on a daily basis people coming in from all over with serious health symptoms, all related to the oil spill. But we're not a culture, we're not a people to complain. We're not a, a culture of people to really seek a lot of medical advice. Uh, you tend to take care of your own uh, illnesses or just, you know, say, well, it's going to pass. It's just it's something minor. And so my husband's doing, as I'm sure he shared, extensive health studies and finding out exactly what the symptoms are. And so there's a real awareness as to how ill everyone's becoming and the impacts that this oil spill has had on their health. Could I ask you what the percentages of the community that are suspected to be ill with this problem? I wish I had concrete numbers to give you, and unfortunately I don't, but it's not only people who worked for the oil spill. We're talking people who just lived in the community, people who just lived by the beach where oil was being collected. And so it's a large number, and it is all along the entire Gulf Coast. And so it's hard to put a percentage on an exact number. We're in the process now of trying to collect that data, just interviewing people and collect that data. At the time of the oil spill, they did contract a lot of people, particularly from the communities along the coastline, to clean up as much of the oil as possible from the beaches. Were any people from your community involved in that, and were they provided with the correct clothing and protection? We did have a lot of our tribal citizens living along the coast who worked for the cleanup. Uh, A lot of the fishermen um, took advantage of the opportunity to be able to help. They felt not only because of the payment that they would receive, because they also love the land. They love the water. They know the bayous and the community more than anyone else because they're in it every day. They live it. They breathe it. It's, you know, like I said, it's in their heart and soul. And so they wanted to do what they could to protect their communities and to help them to recover from this oil spill. And so they did take part in this cleanup. And now my husband... Mike is seeing them on a daily basis. They're coming to us, and there's really nothing to compensate their medical bills. There's nothing out there. And so a lot of them, if they had insurance, they can no longer afford it because they're not being compensated in the claims process. BP does not have any type of structure that's adequately addressing the health issues. 
they were given uh, gear to be able to protect themselves by lean. They were told that if they used the gear, that they would be fired on the spot, so they were not able to even use the gear to protect themselves while they were cleaning up. And so it, it is a tragedy on many levels, but the awareness is definitely there. Pat O'Brien. That's rather alarming, is it not? I know that you have more information to that particular area from the coastline. Is this a problem elsewhere, that in actual fact there was not enough protection and perhaps there wasn't enough time for BP or their associates to kit people up properly? Absolutely. And, you know, we have now interviewed hundreds, and I mean literally hundreds of people from not only the area of Louisiana, but throughout Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. Uh, We have talked to hundreds of people, and we keep hearing the same thing. One of the the things that BP uh, did, uh, they had some masks. They had um, uh, what is used in the mold industry is just like a coverall that uh, they had. And in many cases, uh, we've been told that DP and Coast Guard and other uh, management uh, people that were on the scene were not allowing uh, people to use the masks that might have worked because they didn't want to scare the public. And that became the big issue. So consequently, many of these people, while trained maybe, you know, whatever a, a, a six, seven-hour training would do to deal with hazardous material, uh, whatever training they might have had, they never really outfitted these people properly. And many of the people, as we're finding out, and I know uh, after talking to Dr. Robichaud, uh, Dr. Soto, who is um, another doctor treating these patients, many of the people that got ill didn't know that they were ill for months. They thought they had flu-like symptoms or other symptoms like prostate or uh, something else. Matter of fact, we had talked to Captain Louie, a fisherman out there who had worked very closely with BP executives and also with the cleanup crew, uh, and he didn't know that he was ill. All through the Christmas holidays, he stayed away from his family and friends so as to not to share the flu that the family had. Then they find out that they're ill from this toxic waste, this bacteria, uh, as well as chemical waste that were causing symptoms that were very similar to flu-like symptoms. So with all of the uh, media going away uh, around September, uh, because, hey, there's nothing to see here, don't worry, nothing to look at here, let's move on to the next national story. When that happened, the local media shut down and the national media shut down from covering the story. What happened as a result of that is even the medical community didn't get the proper information to look for other symptoms that could have been caused with a mixture of the corrected product and the oil. If you go on to the websites of the television stations in Louisiana, which I have done personally, or if you go on to Fox News. Now, this is a, a news organization that is fair and balanced, and they have done quite a bit of stories out there. But if you go and, and put on their search engine the word corrects it, you will find out that that word only comes up maybe once or twice, and it was early on in the time of the original Deepwater Horizon disaster. The reason for that is BP, as Brenda brought up, we're seeing television commercial after television commercial. Well, those do not come cheap. BP has spent four times, we know this to be a fact, four times their annual advertising budget. That's four years 
worth of advertising budget for one of the major oil companies since the Deepwater Horizon to now to run those TV ads. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it's been a cover-up. Brenda, if I may ask you uh, quickly, Brenda Robish, how long were you chief of the Huma Indians? For 13 years. I um, had to relinquish my uh, title in June because of term limits. And so I was uh, principal chief for 13 years prior to that. So for 13 years, and at the time of, uh, that was right at the Deepwater Horizon, right, that you would have resigned as chief? Right. It actually happened under my watch. There's another issue, David, I think we must mention regarding the Huma Indians, and that is the U.S. Liquid, a major firm throughout the southeastern United States, is known as a, a company that is like a waste management company that deals in these disaster cleanups. So they were very big in uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina. They've changed names, uh, but they are now known as U.S. Liquids. There is an open dump across the road from a major uh, part of your um, Indian tribe that U.S. Liquids uh, has put up. Could you talk about that, what U.S. Liquids is doing? They receive hazardous material, but unfortunately when it crosses Louisiana state lines, it's considered non-hazardous. And so they, on a daily basis, have truckloads after truckloads of hazardous material that's being dumped into the community. And so, therefore, it's literally poisoning the community. They have suffered serious health issues as well because of the consequences of this facility. When my husband was a state senator about 10 years ago, he actually sponsored a local bill that would have the pit nearest the community closed because it's really too close to the community for um, any safety zone there. And so there's a controversy as to the distance of the first pit. And the oil industry hired every available lobbyist to kill the Robichaux bill. They did not want that to happen. And it's unfortunate that our elected officials that's elected to serve and represent the people oftentimes get compromised and represent oil and gas over the community and the people that elected them. When this bill made it to the House floor, he just kept having to add amendments because it wasn't really gaining any traction or any support because of the powerful oil industry. When it finally made it to the House floor, unfortunately, it did not pass. And he actually had a representative from the House come and tell him, you know, I understand the people in your community are ill. I understand they need some assistance from this pit that's poisoning them. But the oil industry sent me here, and if I were to vote with you on this bill, they would make sure that I was not reelected. And unfortunately, that's the mindset of a lot of our elected officials, whether it's on the state level or on the federal level. We're actually having to fight them as well to represent us and make sure that our people aren't literally poisoned. And the pit still continues to receive hazardous material on a daily basis. The community is really active in their watch of what's happening there, but until the law is changed, until hazardous material is classified as hazardous, it continues to happen today. I believe that I asked this to your husband last time. Are there any other toxic dumps like this in the state of Louisiana? I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I know we have a lot, unfortunately, of, of hazardous areas that cause great concern, but I don't know if there's any other pit like Grandbois. I'm really not sure. I'm sorry. They have, there are a number of closed pits. This is the largest open pit that U.S. Liquid has. Matter of fact, if you have Google Earth, many of you are on computers, and you have Google Earth, you can go to Google Earth, put in U.S. Liquids, 
with an S, and uh, it will take you to all of the sites that are throughout the southeast that U.S. Liquids has. Brenda, how far inland is that pit from Grimoire? I'm really not good with distance, but I would say it's about 50 miles maybe. The pit, there's canals all along Grimoire that feeds our water chain, that goes down the bayous, that feed into one another. So every time they're unloading a barge and this hazardous material is falling into the waters, it's traveling through our water source. It's traveling through our bayous and our water system. And so it's really not that far from the coast. They live in constant fear of what's being delivered as well as high tides or flooding because those pits can overflow and then that hazardous material is not remaining in the pits. It's flowing into the communities. And so that was a great concern with Gustav and Ike, Hurricanes Gustav and Ike, that came this way a few years ago, that the pits were overflowing and this hazardous material was getting into our water system as well as into the community. What is the land that this dump resides on? Federal land or is it the human nation land? No, this is just privately owned land owned by this company, but it's in the heart of our Indian community. Our tribe doesn't have tribal land per se. We have tribal communities, but it's all individually owned by tribal citizens. We don't, we don't have a reservation or we don't have any, you know, uh, designated tribal land. And you, as a community, have access to this company to discuss the renewal of permits and the material itself? Definitely. Um, Clarice Freelou, who is the community leader there, has really taken the charge for many, many years fighting them. And she's at every public hearing that comes up. She is there meeting with everyone that she can to share the story and to try to get relief for the community. And so they definitely are active in this permitting process and, and letting their views and their thoughts be known. But unfortunately, because of this designation, they really are able to operate. Uh, I can share another quick story with you to that regard. My husband, when he was a senator, had the highest uh, voting record on education, you know, being a, an activist for education as well. And so he could not uh, attend this awards banquet, and my daughter and I went. And she was a toddler at the time. Uh, long story short, the governor sees her and says, oh, you're Senator Robichaud's little girl. And he says, well, look at you. Now, you don't look sick like those kids in Grand Bois. And I could not believe that he would say something so insensitive. And so I stood up and told him, no, she's not, because if she lived in the community, she would be as ill as all the other children that you see there. When was this statement made? This was about 10 years ago as well, when my husband was a senator. And to make such an insensitive comment from our governor, it just shows you the power of the oil industry. And his reply to me was, well, as long as they're operating within the law, they have every, you know, they have every right to operate and, and have this facility. The case is something's wrong with the law. Do you as a nation feel cheated in any way? Do you feel punished for being where you are? Do you feel as if you're insulated from the state itself and not awarded fair treatment? Most definitely. We've, we've never had a voice in any of this process. We did not have access to public schools, and that was out of design. Um, I recently addressed a graduating uh, Indian class of seniors and did a little research before, and there was actually a judge who made a comment that we need to keep, and they didn't call us Indians, unfortunately. There's a derogatory term called Sabians. We need to keep the Sabians uneducated because those Indians, they're smart. And if we allow them to have an education, they're going to see how we're taking advantage of them. They're going to see how we're taking their land and all their rights from them. So, I mean, there was a concentrated effort. It was well known that where our tribal communities are was rich with natural resources. 
And so they wanted to make sure that we did not receive an education that we could actually fight, you know, or understand what was happening. And we were very trusting. You hear stories of all of our tribal communities, the oil industry coming in, our big land developers coming in, and we didn't know how to read and write. And they'd say, here, we want to drill on your land, and if we find anything, we want to make sure you're compensated, so you have to put your ex here to give us permission. They were taking our land, you know, and we, and we were very trusting and didn't realize that that was happening. So now the community I grew up in is below Golden Meadow. If you're an Indian person, you didn't live within the corporation limits of Golden Meadow. You lived below Golden Meadow. This was once a thriving Indian community. You go there now, it's all industry or industry that supports the oil and gas and what's happening offshore. The community that I grew up and loved that was a beautiful Indian community no longer exists. And that's because we were trusting, put our ex, and now we no longer own the land that was once ours. Brenda, I'm going to ask you a question, then I'm going to refer this over to Pat O'Brien, and I'm stepping back here. When the men and perhaps the people of your community supported the cleanup in the immediate term after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, were there any contracts provided that they had to sign or anything wavering any sort of liability? In the beginning there was, and then that was challenged, and so they redid the contracts. Uh, but in the beginning there definitely was. Pat O'Brien, have you come across this that perhaps the contracts may be null and void or not appropriate to the purpose? I know um, that some of these are, are in litigation. Um, it, we have talked to people that had signed the contracts, um, and many of the contracts that were signed were under duress. Matter of fact, we know of contracts that were signed by the workers that were on the Deepwater Horizon that they had assigned contracts that wouldn't hold BP liable uh, before they even let them off the rescue boats uh, the night of the, the explosion. So we knew this from the very beginning, and yes, we knew about workers having to sign contracts, but they were dangling money in front of them, and people that have lost their livelihood, and of course they wanted to be able to support their families, so they signed the contracts. But we understand that's in litigation. And for those of you that have gone to Google Earth and you're seeing a whole bunch of letters on U.S. liquids, it's the letter A. You can fly in over the letter A and see where this toxic dump is. Going back to U.S. liquids again and the toxic dump, we have a photo at davidgibbons.org on the page of this program. You'll be able to go in and see a photo of this dump, and you will also see that they are adding to that dump without being permitted. Matter of fact, it's at the end of this month, if I'm correct, that the permitting for the work that they're already doing is going to be either approved or disapproved. Am I correct, Brenda? Yes, that's my understanding as well. And so the community is really trying to fight and make sure that they don't receive any more hazardous material. But it's my understanding that some of this material is coming to the community. What are the conditions in the area that you live in? Is there a constant smell of toxins? or is it dependent upon the wind or the weather? Uh, in the beginning, there was a constant smell of toxins, and when uh, our tribal citizens would call, whether it was EPA or anyone else, they were told to stay indoors. That was the response. 
And this was like, you know, kids were out on a spring break or for the summer. Try to keep children indoors, you know, for any extended period of time. And they described it as smelling like an engine room. The engine room on a boat is how strong the smell was. And so now it depends on the way the wind is blowing, but they're constantly monitoring the, the bayou communities uh, in the open waters to make sure that they're not seeing anything. And now we're facing summertime, and the weather is warming, and so you're starting to see oil come to the surface almost on a daily basis. But unfortunately, they're still spraying this dispersant, you know, to make sure out of sight, out of mind, and there's nothing there is what the perception they're trying to give everyone. What evidence do you have that they are spreading the correction materials still? We actually have people who have witnessed them do that. Mike is working with a large group of uh, fishermen, uh, people who have worked for the oil industry, and they're actually out there and have witnessed them spraying just recently. And this oil, you say, is still coming to the surface very close to the coastline? Yes. This uh, one that we were talking about earlier is right along the coastline of Grand Isle. Can I ask you, in your community, is there a tribal council that has the ability to talk directly to U.S. liquids or even to BP and its affiliate companies? Unfortunately, our tribal government, we don't, we don't have that federal recognition status. Therefore, we don't have that nation-to-nation relationship. And so when we're speaking, we're speaking just as a, a home of people, but without a lot of, a lot of weight behind it, if you will, because we don't have that federal recognition status. And we feel that's part of what's hindering us and has kept us 30 years in this process. You know, it's, it's by design, the same way it was by design that we were not allowed into school, it's by design that we don't have our federal recognition status yet because they do not want to have to deal with a tribe that's federally recognized as 17,000 strong that lives all along the coastline of southeast Louisiana. What do you believe will occur now in the next two or three months leading up to the summer? Uh, do you believe that there will be fishing activity again, or is that a remote possibility at this stage, given that the oil is still there and that the fishing stocks are very impacted? I think it's going to be a community-by-community a community basis, a lake-by-lake um, a or bay-by-bay bay basis as to what's going to happen in each one. Uh, last year when the oil spill first happened, they opened up the season, and then within a couple of days, they closed it. So people who had not trawled for the entire winter time, but I fueled up their boat only to be told that the season was closed again. And I think the same thing's going to happen because our trawlers are trawling in areas that are supposed to be safe, that the waters are open for trawling, and they're picking up their nets that's covered in oil. And so how safe is that? And so I think it's going to be sporadic. I think we're going to face the same thing that we faced immediately after the spill happened with last year's May season. It's still a big unknown. But one thing that we do know is that there's still a tremendous amount of oil out there, and it's trying to be covered up with the use of dispersants, but we're still seeing it. Can you tell me what the psychological effect is on the people of your community? Oh, my God. Um, we faced a lot throughout our history. We suffered four hurricanes in three years. We had Katrina Rita. Then we had Gustav and Ike that impacted us greater than Katrina and Rita. And our, spirit are very, our people are very strong in spirit, very resilient, but they're weary. This is an unknown. Uh, after a hurricane, you can rebuild a house, you can gut it, you can rebuild it, and you can move on with your life. But this is still an unknown. This is going to affect us for generation after generation. And I see it affecting everyone from our youth. I do a lot of work with our youth in the community. And one activity was, what are your 
current and future concerns, and it was the oil spill. We had kindergarten children asking us how to spill oil. And so they understand it. I visit with mothers who are concerned about how they're going to literally feed their children because it doesn't only provide an income for us. We stock our freezers with seafood. If you look at poverty guidelines, I probably grew up poor, according to poverty guidelines. Never in my wildest dream did I ever consider myself poor. My dad was a trawler. He'd come in. He always had fresh shrimp and crabs and oysters and all the beautiful things that the sea has to offer us. And so now we don't have that in our freezers like we once did. And so the mothers that I speak to have concerns about how much more they're having to spend at the actual grocery store because we don't have that wealth or that bounty from the ocean like we did. And so I'm seeing it taking toll on the, the men of the family. They've always been the providers. They've always been very proud, never asking for anything, and been the providers of the family, and now they can't do that. And so you really see the toll that it's taking on them as well. Brenda, we are seeking to act as a bridge between communities such as yourselves and the corporations. What would you like to send as a message of urgency to those in the corporations as to how they can help now? You know, whatever our disaster we're facing at the time, I always ask for prayers for strength because it's, that's what's gotten us through this for quite some time. In another meeting with our children, I felt the need to apologize to them that we as people, not only people of the Gulf, not only people here in the bayous, but we as people need to evaluate our dependency on oil and gas. And I feel the need to apologize to them that we didn't do something sooner that would protect our community, that would protect our natural resources, that they may not be able to experience the love and the beauty that we grew up with. And so I just ask that everyone take a look in the mirror and do what we can to address our dependency on oil and start to implement those changes. Pat O'Brien, we come to the end of the program. What are your final thoughts today? Well, David, as we have done before on this program, we offer an open opportunity to... uh, Robert Dudley, BP CEO, to Nelco CEO, Eric Frywald, and to U.S. Liquid CEO, Manny Gonzalez. Get in touch with us. You know how to reach us. And we'd be more than happy to give you an opportunity to explain what you're going to do for these people of the Gulf Coast. That is the main message, I think it is. It's enough finger-pointing. We all know what is going on. We have documented what has gone on. What we're asking now is for these three companies to come back to the table and get these people the proper medical help that they need. This is going to get a lot worse. We're not standing up here with a bullhorn saying, you know, run for your lives. But in fact, thousands and thousands of people are going to become maimed, injured, or dead as a result of the use of this Corexit product. And these big companies easily come to the table and become heroes by getting them the proper help. Brenda Robichaud, what are your objectives in the coming weeks? We're just going to continue to do what we can to address this issue, to try to bring light, because unfortunately not a whole lot of programs are not covering, such as you are, what's happening to our communities now. And so we're just trying to continue to bring awareness that the communities are still suffering from the effects of the uh, Deepwater Horizon disaster. And now we're starting to see these major health issues 
and something needs to be done. BP needs to be held accountable and address some of the issues that they're trying to hide. You are certainly in our hearts today, and we will do our very best to support you in that region. Brenda Robishaw, Pat O'Brien, thank you for joining me on in discussion today. Thank you. Thank you, David. And to our listeners today, I hope that you gained much information from this program. You can gain information on this and any program at davidgivens.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.